Hello and welcome to the LDA podcast. I am thrilled today to be with one of my heroes, Paul Kirshner. Paul is the Emeritus Professor of Educational Psychology at the Open University of the Netherlands and a guest professor at Thomas More University of Applied Sciences in Belgium. He holds an honorary doctorate at Ulu University in Finland and is research fellow of the American Educational Research Association, the International Society for the Learning Sciences and the Netherlands Institute for Advanced Study. Not to mention, he's a former member of the Dutch Educational Council, and he's also the chief editor of the Journal of Computer Assisted Living and the commissioning editor of Computers in Human Behavior. He's published more than 350 scientific articles, as well as many popular articles for teacher journals and other platforms. As for books, he's the co-author of How Learning Happens, Seminal Works in Educational Psychology, Evidence-Informed Learning Design, Urban Myths About Learning and Education, and More Urban Myths About Learning and Education, as well as the highly successful book, 10 Steps to Complex Learning, among others. And he runs the super, super useful and prolific blog, Three Star Learning Experience for Learning Pros. On a personal level, I'm very lucky to have Paul in my life as both a mentor and more importantly, as a friend. Now, I list all of these achievements and accomplishments, not just to brag about Paul, but I do enjoy doing that, but to indicate that he's truly one of the most qualified humans on the planet to talk about today's topic. We're going to explore the nebulous and highly bantied about word that I'm not so sure those doing the banting about really know in depth when it comes down to it. I'm talking about the deceivingly simple and oft oversimplified concept of skills. So Paul, after that long, long introduction, welcome to the LDA podcast. Now, Matt, uh, thank you. And thank you for those kind words. You just forgot, forgot one thing. Uh, I was born in the Bronx, so people take care. <laughs> That's okay. the most important part. Uh, yeah. But uh, for the rest, uh, it, it sounded it sounded good. I wanted to meet that guy that you were talking about. Uh, I have met him. He's pretty super. Okay. Now, maybe someday you'll introduce me. <laughs> Excellent. So, Paul, let, let's. Uh, I, I I know people are very interested in this topic because if you, every time you open up LinkedIn, someone's talking about skills or skills based organization, or it's so important for us to focus. Uh, on the topic of skills, but what are we talking about? What is a skill? Now, I'll try to say it as as, as easily as possible. Um, first, first of all, uh, you have to differentiate between what people call uh, uh, generic skills and domain-specific skills. Maybe we'll go into that a little bit later in in our talk with each other. But a skill in general is the simplest way to say it is. It's the ability to successfully carry out the steps of a learned procedure leading to the desired outcome. That could be a product or a behavior. In other words, uh, a skill is, uh, is very complex. It doesn't matter if it's a, a physical or a, a cognitive skill. It's very complex. It's based upon uh, quite a number of components. And those components are often in uh, a procedure that you're carrying out. You could call it a list of uh, steps that you're carrying out. And people often um, confuse uh, 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 a procedure with actually 
with the actual skill. But when the people talk about generic skills and they talk about communication, uh, they say, well, of course, we know first look at our audience, then do this, then do that. And I say, okay, that's great, but that's a procedure. You can carry out that procedure, you know, you, you can write that down. I can carry out that procedure in educational psychology, and I can do a piece of research in, in cognitive psychology. If you ask me to do that in the field of economics, which has the exact same procedure, I won't be able to carry it out because I miss, and then we go into it, the domain-specific knowledge and partial skills that I need to carry it out there. You have to realize that what people often see as skills are often procedures that have to be carried out. But what makes it into a skill is that you're capable of carrying it out successfully, that you can do it fluently, you can do it without mistakes, then it is a skill. And that could be anything from hitting a golf ball to uh, cooking a dinner to um, designing a learning program for a company. You bring up this notion that I'm applying the skill uh, fluently. Yeah. Is there a talent that can be confused with that? Uh, is there some of the nature-nurture component that comes into that? Uh, uh, there's always a part of it. Um, uh, I, I used to work with biologists when I was making courses, and one of them said, uh, um, talking about how much is nature and how much is nurture is kind of like arguing about uh, um, is the area of a table determined by, it, by its length or its breadth? They both play a part in it. But most skills for most people are not talents. Uh, you might have a, a propensity to be able to do certain things better than others. You might have a better fine motor behavior, which makes it possible or easier for you to carry out certain skills, but that doesn't mean that you're born with being able to do it, that you have the talent to carry it out. Anyone can play the piano. Um, even the most talented person has to learn to play the piano. But once learning, there are certain aspects of her or his self-being, which makes it easier for them to do certain things that they might have been born with perfect pitch, which makes it easier for them to play by ear, a lot easier than it would make it, than it would be for me. But with enough practice and a good teacher, I can learn to play the piano. You can learn, anyone can learn to play the piano. You don't have to have talent to do it. Yeah, I think that's the, the best way to say it. But if I want to go to Carnegie Hall, you just get on the, the, the D train <laughs> from 182nd Street in the Bronx. You take that down to 57th Street. You get out, you go left, and you're right there. You're right there. And then yeah. you can go to the deli afterwards. Yeah, exactly, to catch this. <laughs> but if I want to play in Carnegie Hall, okay, I probably need to have some ability or innate component. I, 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 really, I, really don't, I, don't, I really don't know. I, I, it's hard to say about that. Okay. I, I think you can you can... Um, play in an orchestra, uh, be second violin or whatever in an orchestra without necessarily being an incredibly talented person. Um, you get the notes that you have to play and you play them and you've learned to play them. To be a, uh, let's say, uh, the solo artist that might 
be different. Although, if you're playing that piece that someone else has written and you've learned to play it perfectly, I think you're very, very skillful, but I don't know if you necessarily <clears throat> need to have that other aspect. I think where the talent comes in is that it makes it easier to achieve that high level of performance to get to play in Carnegie Hall. Um, once you're there, you're carrying it's very instrumental. You're playing the notes that Bach uh, wrote down and which the uh, conductor is conducting you in. Uh, so the talent possibly plays more of a role in getting there than being there. Got it. That's my uh, take on, on the situation. Got it. So the talent piece is an inherent part of the journey. Yeah. But then I'm applying the skill once I've reached the the pinnacle of that. Exactly. Got it. And that's okay. what that's that's what a, a a good baseball player does. I'm not saying there isn't there aren't baseball players or uh, violinists uh, that are uh, completely out of this world and can do the most incredible things that no one else can do. And I can chalk that up to some type of talent that the person has. But I think that the talent is more involved in, as you said it very, very well, Matt, in the journey, which might make the journey uh, quicker, uh, easier, uh, might make it uh, you know, easier to, to, to master certain aspects of what you need to, to master to be able to carry out the skill properly. Now, you alluded to the notion of a complex skill. Yeah. What's a complex skill versus, I would assume, then a simple skill? Complex skill is, of course, just is the, the easiest way to do it, is a complex skill is a, a skill that's made up of sub-skills. And the more scope skills it takes, the, the more complex it is. Throwing a ball is a simple motor skill. Throwing a ball so that it goes through a tire, uh, 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 what is it, 66 feet away. I have to go change from <laughs> one system to another. And also, we don't play much baseball. It's, it's okay. I think we have more listeners in Europe than we do. Okay. In the um, uh, uh, that's much more complex because it, 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 it requires a, a completely different type of coordination. It needs you to be able to judge the velocity, uh, how hard do I have to throw it, um, uh, wind, all of those types of things. So throwing the ball is the simple skill. Uh, throwing the ball through a uh, tire that's 66 feet away is um, more complex. Uh, throwing a ball, uh, throwing a curve ball that sinks at a certain place, yeah, is even more complex. And we can, you know, like move it out and move it out and move it out. And you can do that in the realm of cognitive skills. You can do that in the realm of physical skills complex cognitive skill is a cognitive skill that's made up of more simple cognitive skills. And the more simple cognitive skills that need to be coordinated, carried out either at the same time or successively in order to reach the level that you need of proficiency, uh, accuracy, speed, fluency, those types of things, the more sub-skills there are that are interrelated with each other, uh, the more complex it is. And those, uh, the more complex it is, the more we need to teach that within a domain. Yeah, 
and you have to indefinitely. The more you have to teach it, and you have to teach it in a proper way. And if you want to say, how do you do that? Um, I say, well, read 10 Steps to Complex Learning. This is a little bit too short to tell you how to do it, but you have to um, parse the skill into the sub-skills, do a cognitive task analysis of what those sub-skills are and how they're related to each other. You then have to determine in what order you need to do that, and then you need to determine what type of uh, support and guidance you need, starting from the simplest example of the skill and um, uh, going up to the complete skill at its most at its most complex level we often use the easiest one for the listeners to understand is possibly if you're a, a documentalist or you want to become one and you're trying to learn how to um, do a literature search that's a fairly complex cognitive skill you have to do quite a, a, a number of things although people here uh, who are listening might think, oh, that's easy. That really isn't very easy. It's 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 actually fairly hard. Uh, if you break it down, you can see what the sub-skills are, and then you go to the simplest case of that, which is doing a very clear searching based upon a very clear question in a small database, not needing to use Booleans, not mean, needing to make uh, uh, judgments about it, those types of things is the, the, the simplest version of the complete skill. As you, if you've mastered that, then you can make that skill more complex. You can say, for example, um, add databases or make the question less clear or have the necessity to make use of Booleans to do it in the right way. But on the way to there, you have to master what are the Booleans? Um, how do you use them? How do they work? What do they lead to? Um, you have to learn to determine which databases should I use? So those are all different parts of that complex cognitive skill of doing a good data search. You once uh, gave me a great example to illustrate this. I asked you, how would I, or how should I design teaching critical thinking? And you said, first, tell me what domain. Yeah, exactly. You cannot now, teach critical thinking. You can't teach topic. The, um, uh, uh, generic skills don't exist. It's just that simple. Uh, we hear about uh, uh, critical thinking. We hear about problem solving. Leadership. Uh, we hear about co communicating with each other, with, 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 with others. Um, you can't solve a problem in chess without knowing chess uh, strategy, chess tactics, and let's go a level lower, without knowing how the pieces move, how they relate to each other. So you can only solve a chess problem if you know a lot about chess, and you can only come up with a creative solution to a chess problem if you even know more. And that's true for all areas. As I said, um, um, you could say, uh, solve problem solving, doing research, carrying out research, you could see as a generic skill because you're actually solving a problem that involves things like uh, determining what the problem is, um, setting up the, uh, the research, uh, this, that's the, the methodology, uh, gathering, uh, doing, the, do, doing the, the, the study, gathering the data, 
doing something with that data, looking at your results and making conclusions. I can do that in educational psychology because I can look at a problem. How can you learn? How I think is, is, is it better to have um, intervals of two days as opposed to five days between study sessions to uh, increase learning? That's the problem. I can look at it and say, well, um, I know what the theory says because the theory talks about spread learning. I forget the words in English. Gespreid leren is what it's uh, called in Dutch. Spaced learning. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. You, uh, I, I know uh, that. I know about um, Ebbinghaus in 1885 and forgetting and all of those types of things. So I have a theoretical basis as to what should work and why based upon things like cognitive load theory and um, uh, uh, space practice. Based upon that, I can set up an experiment to do that. I can gather the data. I've done enough um, statistics to know which statistical techniques should I use to uh, do something with my data to determine what works best. And then because I know the theoretical basis, I can then look at my results see what happened and then in my discussion i can then make conclusions and say why that's for me very very easy in that area if you ask me to do the exact same thing in social psychology i'd have no idea what to do because i don't i could look at a problem and i say but i have no way of knowing the theory that i should make use of in order to carry out my experiment experimentation isn't just we'll try this out you do that based upon a theory, but I don't have the social psychological background to know which theory I should be using or could be using to study this problem. So that at the first step of doing that piece of research, of trying to solve that problem, what works better, I'm already stuck. Although the domain of social psychology is incredibly close to educational psychology, and then I'm not talking about quantum physics. And people think if you, if you in, in schools, if you learn to think critically in history about the Second World War, you'll also be able to use that critical thinking way of critical thinking in economics or in uh, sociology. But you can't. If you but that's such a that's such a critical point. Yeah. So even if the domains are close together. Exactly it's still non-transferable. Now, let's take a chess master will not be very good in, in checkers or in Go, although all of them are, all three of them are strategic board games and two of the three are carried out on exactly the same board. It's not transferable from one to the other. And the pushback we get when we say these uh say what you just said to to folks in the learning and development industry is that's okay because we're getting them started at a general level and well, you're getting them getting them started at a very specific level because you're doing it within the domain that they might understand with a problem within their domain of knowledge but if you ask them then to do it in a domain in which they absolutely have no knowledge, then they know the procedure. But if we go back to my original definition, they won't be able to successfully carry out those steps of the learned procedure, and it will not lead 
to the desired outcome, neither the product nor the behavior. So these complex skills, we can, and I, I say it in scare quotes, we can teach them, but we need to do it within a domain-specific context. Definitely. And we need to do it using the, the procedures, processes, rules, etc. Exactly. As a platform for teaching people how to apply those. Yeah. So uh, from an instructional design perspective, then, how do we go about creating uh, uh, an experience for our learners in that capacity? Yeah, that's that's kind of hard to, to, to say because it's 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 what is what is the skill? I mean, if the skill is uh, being an, an air an air traffic controller to be able to um, uh, talk planes down safely to the ground while looking at 150 different uh, uh, planes that are in the sky and knowing their flight patterns, um, then I wouldn't put them in a very realistic situation in order to begin the, uh, the training. Um, if the skill is not such a critical skill in which the making of a mistake could lead to a disaster, and that disaster doesn't need to be a plane flying down, it could be losing a client or whatever, I wouldn't do it in that situation, but I might make an, a, a little more realistic situation than I would uh, a gigantic board with 150 planes flying. How would you do it? It depends upon yeah. what the skill is that you'd like to uh, like to achieve. And what about um, some of the softer softer uh, uh, skill sets uh, like uh, empathy or that, being able? A, ooh, but empathy that's a trait. You can't teach that at all. Excellent. I didn't if mean to say if, excellent. But... If we if we get into things like that, um, flexibility, leadership, empathy those types of things, then, then, then we're, some, we're talking about something completely different. What are Those we talking are, about? We're talking about traits. Um, that's something that um, is very, very hard to change. People have it or they don't have it. Let's talk about it in, in, in that sense. Um, it's also something, if you want to do something with certain traits, such as uh, leadership or flexibility, the only thing you can actually do is you can create a, let's call it a psychologically safe environment in which the person you're dealing with is allowed, is given the opportunity, is presented with situations in which those things can, can, can be shown, can be exhibited, and then you can work on it further. Um, I often, we often have that in, in, in schools, because as you know, I do primarily my research uh, on, on learning and schools and not within the uh, corporate setting uh, as you do, and I guess all of the people who are listening. But if, we, if, if, if as a teacher or a trainer, you want people to think out of the box, you have to create a safe environment such that if someone has an out of the box idea, they won't be afraid to express that idea. If the environment is such that someone comes with an out-of-the-box idea and the others laugh or the, the, the instructor says, that's the, the dumbest thing I've ever heard, I would be willing to bet you that that person will not 
come up with an out-of-the-box idea in the next number of days, weeks, or months. So you can create environment in which you can encourage it. You present tasks which invite people to do that. And you honor, and the word in Dutch is belong, you, uh, you reward. And you reward that person with praise or whatever uh, for doing that. Kind of like, whoa, I never thought of it that way. How did you come up with that idea? And let's, let's work through that. What, where would that lead to? And maybe it leads to something that's incredibly creative. Yeah. yeah? That's also the same thing with creativity. That's also, um, but, um, uh, or maybe it leads nowhere or down a blind alley, but then you've helped that person find that blind alley, her or himself, instead of swatting it down immediately. And the same thing is with flexibility yeah. or leadership. Those are things where if someone is supposed to do something and decides to do it in a different way, you can either say, no, that's wrong because this is what we agreed upon. Or you can say, hey, and where did that bring you? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and um, why did you choose to do it differently? So when we're, looking at, things. when we're looking at, say, leadership, yeah. there, are certain, there are certain principles and procedures I can teach, but those don't equal leadership. No, that's, that's knowing the procedure. And then not being a leader. we have the, the uh, innate... Uh, for lack of a better word, the talent piece, the innate components of leadership we can't teach, but we can foster an environment where people can explore it and find it safely on their own. Yeah. But we're not going to be able to actually make someone a leader. No, you can't only make give someone them some a of the tools. Yeah. You can't make someone a leader. You can't make someone flexible. I mean, or creative. I'm, I'm or creative. I'm fairly inflexible. Um, uh, if we've agreed to do something, then it's even if it's something very simple at home, leaving at 6 p.m. this evening. Yeah. Don't um, be two minutes late. Don't be two minutes late because, you know, I'm, I'm not very flexible in, in that respect. Um, I've learned in my environment um, to be more flexible. I try to be more flexible, but it's just a trait within me. And um, that is for a lot of things, very, very good, because I've achieved quite a lot in in my life by um, doing things the way we agreed upon and never missing a deadline and things like that. I try to be more flexible, but that's just the character trait of me. And um, you really won't change it. What you can do is you you can teach someone to a certain extent, a number, as you said, about leadership about what it entails, but uh, please don't, don't get me wrong. And please, if there are people out there somewhere uh, who are also on the autistic spectrum, um, there are certain approaches to helping people with autism to function better in a social environment by having them know the rules, but they have to learn it, learn the rules and carry them out. That doesn't make them less autistic but it allows them to function better within the situation that they are. But you can't um, teach someone to be a leader. You can create the environment in which they can show their leadership and then that which they show in their leadership, you can help them hone that, uh, 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 do it better, 
those types of things. You can create the environment in which they, 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 they can exhibit that while they're learning it and become confident enough and have then done enough with that, experienced it enough, carried out enough, that within another environment, let's say their, their, their normal working environment, they'll be able to show leadership skills. So let's take a quick shift in in topic, and uh, because uh, you and your your friend John Sweller yeah. have written quite extensively, uh, and he's done a lot of work in this area around the cognitive architecture. He's the master. Um, if you've ever worked with John, humility is hey, he's the most humble person possibly that I know. Oh, we we had him on. Uh, uh, he came to one of our conferences and he presented. And he was just, ah, he was just, you wanted to hug him. Yeah, he was exactly. Just one of the nicest, yeah. sweetest people alive. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, but so um, what is the cognitive architecture? Cognitive architecture is very simple. And that's, the, the, everybody has the exact same cognitive architecture. Um, from all around you, uh, stimuli enter your body um, through all five of your senses. And they come in what we call our sensory memory. That's uh, very short-lived. That's in f max a second, maximum, uh, but usually under a second. At that point in time, if you choose to attend to that stimulus, and you would have to realize if there, there, there are, I think I once tallied it up, um, something around 11 million stimuli that come in at your senses at any one moment and people think wow that's that's quite a lot but you have to realize that your eyes have so many sensory inputs that each one is a bit of information but it's 11 million bits of information at any one time come in and you have to choose what am i going to attend to so we have the first piece of our architecture is our sensory memory it comes in it's there for less than a second and if you choose to attend to it, then it goes into your working memory. And that's where information is processed. And that's also fairly short-lived, uh, uh, a couple of seconds, up to 20 seconds. It stays in your, your, your working memory. If you do nothing with it, it's lost. If you do something with it, that's why it's called your working memory. You process it there in any way, shape or form. Chances are that you'll remember it for a short amount of time. And if you process it, and if it's relevant, you will then transfer it into your long-term memory. And your long-term memory, well, your short-term memory has anywhere from four, five, six pieces of information at any one time. Your long-term memory is virtually endless. And it goes into your long-term memory. And what you already have there in your long-term memory are a cognitive schemata uh, of, of, of that, your, your way of seeing the world and experience the world. And if that new information can be hung up in a schema that you already have, it will be retained. If it can't be, you'll have to create a new schema in your long-term memory or adapt a schema in your long-term memory. And then there's a, at that point in time, there's a, a, a process you could call it a, um, try to think of the word again, um, a reciprocal relationship. You're constantly adding information from your working memory into your long-term memory, but you're also constantly retrieving information from your long-term memory 
to make use of it in your working memory to process new information. So it's a, a, a kind of like a circular process. Uh, one, the, the, the one thing is the storage and the storage strength. So you're storing new processed information into your long-term memory. You're storing it there. And then when you need it in your working memory to carry out a new process of information uh, processing, you're then retrieving it. And the more often you store a piece of information, and the more often you retrieve that piece of information, the stronger the uh, memory of it will be, and the more quickly, more fluently, more effortlessly you can use it. And the simplest example of that is um, the multiplication tables. At the beginning, you're learning it, and six times seven is 42, and eight times three is 24, and you learn that, and you, 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 you automate it. You learn it and you say it and you say it and you say it and you say it and, and, and until it's completely automated and you don't have to think about it anymore. But once you're dealing with a mathematical problem, what you then do is you're not calculating six times eight when it's necessary. No, you're just getting 48 out of your long-term memory and making use of it. So all of the steps in the processing of six times eight, we do that as five times eight is 40, and then one times eight is, and all of those steps you no longer need to do in your working memory. You're dealing with a problem in which the multiplication of six and eight needs to be carried out. You just get that one piece of information out of your long-term memory completely effortlessly, and it doesn't take any space in your working memory, which is, as I said, very limited, all of those four or five steps to multiply six times eight, your memory is full. You can't do the original problem anymore because your memory is full by trying to figure out what six times eight is and coming up with 48. And people say, well, you can use a calculator, but you have to realize you also have to carry out those steps on your calculator, which is also mental space that you're making use of in which it would have been quite a lot easier just to be able to retrieve effortlessly 48 or that NACL is salt or whatever. And this is, this is why it's so important what we talked about earlier. This is critical to the notion that you don't teach skills. We have to teach and embed the processes, procedures, and rules into long-term memory, or I can't apply the skill fluently no. later. No. And that's why I can't do a workshop or a class in just a few hours for things that are complex. For things that are complex, you can't do that. If it's a simple skill, of course, Maybe. it can be carried out. But uh, I mean, how long does it take to become a, a, a decent golfer as opposed to an accomplished golfer? And well, how many different um, mental and physical skills are involved in just doing, okay. you know, Did swinging, swinging the club? And, and, and let's take that golf as a, as, as a totality. That's a highly complex cognitive and motor skill. And that's made up of quite a lot of sub-skills. What you would do if you're teaching that is you would then do a, a task analysis of what are all of the sub-skills that you need to learn and then begin with the simple, simplest example of doing it. What we normally do is we teach people um, only putting and only this and only that and only driving and only whatever. But the idea is you need to carry out 
the complete task in which you understand, you know, like where putting is a part of it. And then if one of those skills is such that it needs to be automated, then you do extra part task practice, practice, and you put and you put and you put and you put. But you teach it in first instance, in the, let's say, the simplest form that you can think of to carry it out. And that's you know, on, a, on a pitch and putt with uh, uh, one or two different clubs and uh, uh, those types of things. You, and then you keep making it more difficult. So the, this also, when we're teaching people these principles, procedures, and rules, et cetera, we could exceed one's cognitive load. Definitely. So we need to be also be careful as we're teaching this stuff not to go over that. What Can you quickly give a, a high-level definition of cognitive load theory? Cognitive load Excuse theory me. is very simple. Uh, people think it's kind of hard, but it, it, it isn't. Cognitive load theory says you have a certain amount of space in your working memory that you can make use of, and the task that you carry out should never exceed the amount of space that you have. Um, see it as you have a certain amount of money in your wallet and what you're spending shouldn't exceed what's in your wallet. Um, having said that, there in cognitive load, uh, there are two types of load. One is load that's inherent to the task. I can't change it. If I have to walk up, walk a up a flight of 15 steps for each flight and I have to get to the uh, sixth floor, I can't change that task. That's 90 steps. It's that simple. But there are certain things that affect that inherent aspect of the task. And that's how old I am, my weight, how fit I am. The fitter I am, the less intrinsic load I will experience. The older I am, the more load I will experience. If it's a cognitive, if we're talking about cognitive aspects, the more knowledge I have in an area will decrease the inherent load in carrying out the task. The second type that's, that's uh, first is what's inherent. They call that intrinsic load. Uh, the second is that load which we add based upon the instructional technique we've chosen. Certain techniques are quite effort, effortful, other techniques aren't. And the whole long and short is that those two aspects, the extrinsic, extraneous, and the intrinsic load shouldn't exceed the amount of cognitive space that you have. Um, and what you strive to do is to design your instruction in such a way that the steps that need to be carried out are not too large. And that way you control the intrinsic load and to choose an instructional approach that's effective and efficient so that the two together will not exceed the amount of mental effort that you're capable of expending. The goal of cognitive load theory is not to minimize the load, but to optimize the load. Those two things together, choosing tasks that are large enough to be meaningful, but small enough as to not take up too much space in your head, and then choosing an instructional technique the extraneous load that is beneficial by not adding load that doesn't lead to learning. And there are quite a lot of approaches 
to learning such as discovery learning, which add quite a lot of extraneous load to the situation. So Paul, you're you're talking about uh, an interesting thing. A lot of people in corporate training strongly, strongly adhere to the notion of discovery learning. And discovery learning seems like it it can has the potential to add quite a bit of load or extraneous load onto the learners. Discovery learning be, meaning that you let the learners lead the way and work through problems and things like that. Is there a time and a place for discovery learning? Yes, but then we're talking about experts. Um, uh, I'm a uh, let I'll I'll, I'll 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 say it out loud for the first time. I'm an expert in the field of educational psychology. My job as a scientist is to discover. That's my epistemology. And I learn new things by doing research, by discovering it. That's the time and the place to do it. I can't do that research everywhere. It's very costly, very time consuming, not very effective, not very efficient, because you only make very small incremental discoveries that are worthwhile. So what I do is I read what John has done in a piece of research, and then I'm very making use of very explicit instruction in that, which is one of, of, of the ways of doing it. Allowing for discovery can be used, and you have to understand discovery is something different than applying. Uh, what uh, discovery is not, um, I've taught you this and this, discover the next step, that's discovery learning. That's not a very effective or efficient way to do that because the person can come up with six or seven wrong things before she or he gets it right. Frustrating. It can be frustrating. That's the second part of it. It can be very frustrating. You know, hitting your head against the wall constantly is not very pleasing to a person. But it's also not a very efficient way because it's costing quite a lot of time to discover something that I could have taught you. That's something different than saying we've reached a point in which you've learned and practiced under supervision enough that I can let you do it by yourself. But then you're applying the skill um, without supervision. There's someone usually in the neighborhood to help out with it. But you're then applying what you've learned in a new situation based upon new data or whatever. And that's great, but I'm then not asking you to discover anything. I'm asking you to make use of what you learned to carry out the skill properly. But I'll go back and say, actually, I was too quick with it. I say, in the learning situation, it's for me, it's never the case that discovery is a good way of learning. Within the world itself, discovery is often the epistemology of the expert in order to gain new knowledge for themselves and for the rest of the world. But then we're in a completely different situation. Derek Hudson once said that scientists are doing science, students are learning science. If you're in an instructional design situation, workshop or whatever, you have to realize those are the students learning and not the experts doing. And Discovery is the epistemology of the expert, the way the expert gains new knowledge, and that's never effective, efficient for the learner.
It can be interesting sometimes. It can be fun sometimes, but it often doesn't lead to learning. Last question, circling back to skills. Yeah. We how do we evaluate whether a person is implementing or executing the skill fluently? It's it seems obvious, but it is obvious. Um, if you want to do it, you can only see whether they can carry it out. It's that in simple. the context. In the context, and it can be a real context. It can be a simulated context. Um, uh, before you let someone um, guide a tanker through the Suez Canal, at this time they often have maybe, to learn. Time maybe to we want to simulate that. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you want to simulate that or with a nuclear reactor or flying an airplane or um, uh, um, being a, an air traffic controller, but also in um, uh, uh, implementing for a company their computer or whatever, you want to do it in a safe environment. You might want to do it with um, simulated people within uh, within the situation, think of a, a doctor, um, you want to see whether they're skillful at surgery before they actually cut someone open. Yeah. yeah. So, but you create an environment and you have to see them actually in a realistic environment, in an authentic environment. And that means uh, psychologically, uh, but also with respect to who's in the situation. I mean, a, a doctor carries out an operation, not in a in an environment in which the doctor is there alone, but there's an anesthetist and there are nurses and there are it's a coordinated team. So you have to actually simulate the total situation if you really want to see them being able to work, because being a surgeon is more than just cutting someone open. It's also getting the right implements from the right person, etc, etc, etc. So it's you work your way to that in simulated situations and you add, as it were, authenticity. You make it more psychologically. You make it more uh, authentic. Um, that means it's under a stress situation. Someone might be dying. Yeah. You, you, you do it in a, a high fidelity situation in which all of the instruments that you need and the people are also in the, 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 the environment and that can do the wrong things at the wrong time in which the surgeon has to react to. Those are the things you do. So you have to add authenticity to the training situation or the, the, the assessment situation in order to see whether or not they can do it well. But I'm now talking about skills that are actually very vital, such as being a surgeon or, 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 or uh, running a nuclear reactor in which lives are in the balance often in most of the situations that the instructional designers will be working in aren't like that. So you don't need to be completely authentic to see if one one can, can make use of Excel to balance the books. But it is important to create situations if you want to know if they can really do it, in which, for example, time is a factor. If that's part of the normal situation that that person will have to work in. If it's not, if there's never stress, because things have to get done very quickly, then you don't need that in the assessment situation. If it is the case that you have to make snap judgments and things like that, then you have to create a situation 
in which you can judge whether that person can do it. So you have to look, going back to the beginning of the 10 steps, what is now the whole task that someone has to carry out? What are the parts of that? Is time a factor? Then in the assessment, time has to be calculated into the equation. If time isn't a factor in the skill that someone needs to achieve, then it doesn't need to be added to the assessment situation. And that's what you have to look at. You begin with what is the task? What are the components? And when you're finally done, you assess where the task and assess whether or not the different components can be carried out, are being carried out properly. Paul, thank you. And uh, thank you for taking the time. I, I hate ending these conversations because I could go on forever, but you would probably get really annoyed with me. No, that's possible. <laughs> not, not very quickly, but eventually. Eventually. So, folks, if you want to find Paul, the quickest and easiest way for people that tend to listen to this show would be to go to the Three Star Experience Learning, Learning Experience. Experiences blog. Yeah, you can find Paul there, and you'll find a treasure trove of content that is pertinent to many of the folks in this audience. There are tons of other places you can find Paul but that's probably the quickest and easiest way. And we will put a list of Paul's books and where to get them in the show notes. But I really want to thank you, Paul, for taking the time. In one month, we're going to have a conversation with Elam Araby from the World Health Organization. Elam, is a, she did her dissertation on learning evaluation using Will Tallheimer's learning transfer evaluation model. And uh, she's going to share with us some of the learning evaluation projects she's worked on over the last several years. Uh, and it's taken her several years to get enough of the data. So it's very interesting stuff that she's done. So we're looking forward to that conversation. Again, Paul, thank you so much. And Matt, uh, thank, you for, thank you for inviting me, talking to you. And people don't know this, but we've had also a number of conversations over dinner uh, in, in the Netherlands. Um, talking to you is always incredibly stimulating because you ask the type of questions that make me think that aren't the run-of-the-mill questions that I often get. So I could also say to you, thank you very, very much for this conversation. Thanks, Paul. Take care.